coming back Way too deep in the feelings that I love I'm changing Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to your Killing Me Smalls. That music you heard right at the beginning there is a clip from the new song, Hate You, by the band Bloom. They are a Toronto-based trio, um, and they were initially planning to release an EP, but the group's chemistry allowed them to amass a large number of demos in a short amount of time. So they do a lot of different, uh, they mix a lot of uh, different styles, um, such as hip-hop, R&B, emo, and indie. Um, And they are a new up-and-coming band. If you guys want to take a listen to them, I really, really recommend taking a listen to them. They are a great band. They have a good uh, social media following. And they're a Canadian band, so if you're one of my Canadian supporters, feel free to give them a follow. That brings me into my first announcement for this uh, for this episode. So I've decided that I'm going to I want to help uh, small creators like myself uh, get more uh, popularity. So if you are a small creator, um, I want to help you out. So if you are interested, feel free to shoot me a message on my Instagram or my TikTok or any of my social medias. Tell me what you want me to promote, um, and if I can make a make it work into my episode, I will 100% try and do that for you guys. My second announcement is that I am going to stick with the one week on, one week off schedule. I just find that it works better for me with my schooling and my mental health as well. And finally, um, I've decided that for each case that I do, so I'm going to do them in groups of two so that they're all going to kind of connect in groups of two. So like my past two cases... Um, have been about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. This case is an NCR case, so I'm going to be doing another NCR case for my next episode. Um, I think that's about all the housekeeping I have. Um, Feel free to follow uh, the podcast's Insta because I will be doing a giveaway soon. I haven't decided what the prize will be yet, but if you are interested, feel free to uh, give that Instagram a follow. It's at You're Killing Me Smalls Podcast. Now, without further ado, let's head right into this episode. So today's case that I am covering is the case of the Brentwood Five, which takes place in Calgary. So on April 14th, 2014, which is known as Bermuda Short Day at the University of Calgary, um, this is because it's usually one of the warmest days of the semester, and it's the last day of classes, so everyone just wears Bermuda shorts um, And for the winter semester. So this was supposed to be a carefree day between a group of friends that turned into one of the darkest days in Calgary's history. And I do want to give a quick trigger warning. This is a very, very graphic case. Um, this talks about a lot of blood, a lot of death, a lot of gore. Um, so I just want to give a quick heads up if anyone is uh, not about that. Um, I'll give another trigger warning once I am reaching that section, just so everyone is 100% sure that they are strapped in for this. So this uh, took place amongst a group of friends. Um, they became known as the Brentwood Five because this took place in the Brentwood neighborhood of Calgary. Um, and before I talk about the horrible crime that was committed, I want to talk about the victims because they were all amazing young adults. And I know it's pretty cliche to say that, but 
they honestly were. They were amazing young adults. They were going to change the world, most likely. So first, we have Katie Paris. According to her family, Katie was kind, talented, and on the verge of greatness. She was an accomplished ballerina that was confident, genuine, and didn't let people push her around. She loved her little sister dearly, as well as her older sister. Her family wants her to be remembered for how she lived and not how she died. So Katie was this amazing ballerina. She obviously had a lot of skill. I found videos of her dancing. She's amazing. She's gorgeous. She's this gorgeous smile. Like, just looks like she'd be so nice to be around. She'd be the type of girl who, if you had a rip in your pants, she'd kindly let you know. If you needed someone to go to the bathroom with you, she'd go with you. And it breaks my heart that her life had to end so tragically. Uh, next, I'm going to be talking about Jordan Segura. He loved reggae music. Uh, he was pursuing pursuing a major in religious studies at U University of Calgary at UFC. He had a love for traveling and wanted to explore the world, and he did. His family kept all the postcards that he had, um, and now they're kind of a sad reminder of all the places he went, but also places he won't be able to go. One that stood out to me while I was researching was one from when he was in New Zealand, and it's a gorgeous handwritten note. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but you can just tell he loves his family and he loved his life. Um, and according to his family, he was an independent free spirit that was confident in himself to make his own decisions. He was a leader, never a follower. His mother says she still expects him to walk in at any moment. And that's one thing I found in common with all the victims, um, their families. Uh, their families were absolutely crushed by this tragedy because Jordan, uh, his mom, said that he, she still expects him to walk in at any moment. She get, she's getting through day by day, hour by hour, because that's her baby boy. You never get over the loss of a child. And obviously, I don't know. I don't have a child, but um, I can't imagine the amount of loss and pain that this that these families are feeling over their loved ones. Zach Rathwell, um, he's one that really stood out to me. So he was the front man of a local band called Zachariah and the Prophets. So Zach's full name is Zachariah, but he preferred to go by Zach. Um, his family remembers that there was always music whenever he was home. He was an amazingly talented musician. It wasn't just a it wasn't just a hobby for him. It was his passion. It was his love. That is what his life revolved around his music and there's always music with him whenever he was home uh he would write his own lyrics he would create his own songs and now that he's gone there's just silence and that is probably so hard for their family to once have their house full of life um now be silent weirdly silent his most prized could his most prized possession was his guitar that barely left his side. So he obviously loved that guitar like a child, which like it makes me smile thinking of him with his little with his guitar just being like just playing away, just strumming away. Cause I know my boyfriend does that with instruments that he owns, and that breaks my heart to imagine the people that loved him just not have that anymore. Next is uh Josh Hunter. Josh's family remembers him as an insightful and genuine young man that had a bright future ahead of him. His family wants to remember him for how he lived and not how he died. So there wasn't a ton of information. His family was very private about their grieving. Um, but they did say that Josh was a gentle soul, that he was very kind. Um, 
and that he was just so smart. That's one thing that his parents remember, that he was very, very smart and very, very articulate. And finally, there's Lawrence Hong. So Lawrence was a fierce advocate for the city of Calgary growing up there. Um, and he really wanted uh, the addition of bike paths. And I can't blame him. Biking is a great way to exercise, a great way to get out and see the city. Um, his family really struggled with his death and had a hard time moving forward. And in one article that I read, um, his father remembers the last car ride that they took together. He was dropping him off at classes and he remembers, oh, he was just so smart. He sounded so smart and I didn't want the car ride to end because I didn't want him to stop talking. And that really sums up Lawrence in a nutshell. He was just so smart, but he was so kind and so articulate about it. Now that I've covered the victims and I've un I did so much reading on this case about the victims because I really want to focus on telling the victim's story in this case because they were young adults. The oldest, I think, was the oldest of them was 27. 27 years old, that's still beginning your life. You're still pretty young. I'm 18, I'm almost 19, and my life is just beginning. So how can you blame these families? Their children were in the prime of their lives, and they were killed in such a senseless act of violence. I'm going to go through the series of events as best I can, step by step. So it started off as just a quiet night, as a quiet party, just a group of friends hanging out. It wasn't like those loud, out-of-control parties that we had pre-COVID, obviously, um, that you see in college and high school. It was just a group of friends hanging out, celebrating that they got through another semester because that's all that they were worried about. They weren't worried that they were going to be killed. Um, and so one person did stand out, Matthew DeGroote. So he attended U of C as well. Uh, he had been planning to go to law school and his father was an inspector with the Calgary police. According to his friends and family, his disposition started to change in the weeks leading up to the attack. Um, starting with bizarre Facebook statuses, uh, talking about lots of conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Even at the party, Matthew was going on about conspiracy theories again. Um, but the other party goers didn't think much of it. Um, he was invited by one of Zachariah's friends, or yeah, it was at Zachariah's house, I believe. It was either at Zachariah or Josh's house. Um, and they, so one of their buddies, Brendan, um, was the one who invited Matthew because they were childhood friends. So his behavior continued to spiral throughout the night, getting more and more erratic and more strange just as the night wore on. Um, at one point, he put on blue surgical gloves, and I, that might seem normal now with COVID. You know, you don't want to touch anything, but this was in 2014. This was seven years ago. Um, so I was 11 years old when this happened. I was new. I just turned 11. I remember hearing this, but so he didn't take the gloves off even when he was washing his hands, which is really weird. And it was reported that he was carrying garlic in his pocket, but that wasn't the only piece of garlic. So he had a clove of garlic in his pocket and one in his sock. And he started talking about the blood moon, the apocalypse, and vampires. So obviously something is not right with this uh, young man. He is freaking out the other party goers, and I can't blame them. I would be freaked out, too, if I was at a party and all of a sudden this random guy starts talking about conspiracy theories and blood moons. I'd be moving as far away from him as possible. It would freak me out, and 
but they were friends with him, so they didn't think that anything was wrong. Maybe they were used to him acting this way. So everything's going well up to this point. There was drinking, but can you blame them? It's a college party. They're all over the age of 18. It's not like there's underage drinking. Um, the only kind of weird hiccup of the night was Matthew and his weird ramblings, but that's about it. So around 1 a.m., um, a group of a group of friends uh, went to McDonald's. So I don't, I couldn't find how many people were at this party exactly. Um, we know for sure that those five plus Matthew and Brendan were at the party. So there's there was at least seven. I'm gonna say there was around ten, maybe twelve people. Now that sounds like a lot because of COVID, but remember this is pre-COVID when people could still go out and party. Hopefully, we'll get there one day. So around 1 a.m., a group went to McDonald's to pick up food. Honestly, same. If I'm at a party, that's one of the things we did um, coming back <laughs> from a party. You you get this, you stop at McDonald's and you get your fries and your chicken nuggets or whatever you order, and it makes your night. It's awesome. So when they got back, Lawrence was asleep. Lawrence had fallen asleep on the love seat in the living room, while Josh, Katie, and Jordan were on another couch together. Um, and Zach was in the kitchen. So what happened next happened quickly and unexpectedly. So I'm going to put another trigger warning in here. Warning, this is going to get graphic very, very quickly. Matthew all of a sudden took a chef's knife from a block in the kitchen. So a big knife. He stabbed Zach seven times before moving into the living room. One, you stab someone once, you could say it was an accident. Seven times. That's rage. There was no altercation between the two. They were just hanging out in the kitchen. There wasn't a fight. There wasn't anything. This was 110% an unprovoked attack on Matthew's end. Matthew then stabbed Josh six times and Jordan once. Katie attempted to escape and ran out of the living room. But unfortunately, Matthew caught up to her easily and stabbed her four times. So while this was going on, Lawrence was still sleeping when he was stabbed four times. He was stabbed four times in his sleep. He was sleeping. These people, they were just sitting around. They weren't causing a ruckus. They weren't being rude. They weren't being disruptive. There was no other altercations. It was a, just a good vibes, hanging out, um, just enjoying life, enjoying the fact they finished another semester. When this person decides to attack and kill them, even though he had so even though he had serious life-threatening injuries, Josh got up and ran out of the house. But he was followed by Matthew. And that, that I think that speaks a lot to Josh's character how even though he had life-threatening issues like seriously life-threatening, he still got up and he still tried to get help for he probably wasn't even thinking of himself. He might have been thinking about everyone else. And Matthew followed him. Now, at this point, Josh is outside the house, and so is Matthew. So they're outside the house. They're on the front lawn. And the group that went to McDonald's was just coming back now. So they heard Katie's screams coming from inside the house and saw Matthew chasing Josh down the street with the knife still in his hand. So this must have been utter chaos. They must have been so confused coming back. Like, what happened? It was just a chill night. Like, there wasn't any drama. Like, what happened? I'm going to talk about this absolute hero 
who tried his darndest to catch Matthew. So Brendan, Josh's roommate, and he was the one, as I mentioned before, um, who invited Matthew because they were childhood friends. He gave chase. He chased Matthew down the street. Josh, still fighting for his life, ran back to the house and collapsed on the lawn. So the way I think it worked, um, how it happened, was he Josh managed to get out of the house um, almost to the street and then turned back and collapsed because his injuries were finally catching up to him. He ran out of the adrenaline that he that was obviously pumping through his body when you've been stabbed four times. So Brendan, while Josh collapses on the lawn, Brendan does catch up to Matthew, who handed over the blood-soaked knife and said, it was the night of long knives. Now, this is a reference to um, what happened in uh, 1930, I want to say 39 Germany. Right before the Holocaust happened, there was the night of the long, the night of the long knives, which is where Nazis uh, raided Jewish synagogues. I believe I don't know for sure because then there was the night of broken glass, Crystal Notch, where Jewish businesses were raided, set on fire, and this isn't the first. This isn't the only um, nod to Hitler that Matthew gives, um, as we'll see as we go into a deeper dive into his psyche, especially as the trial progresses. So. Matthew took off running again after he utters this weird phrase to Brendan. And Brendan chases him again. And after catching up to him, Matthew then wiped his blood-soaked hands on Brendan's and told him they were now blood brothers. So I think that in his twisted mind, he thought he was like incriminating him as well because, oh, there's blood on his hands. Matthew, you're the only one that stabbed the people. Brendan was the one that caught up to you. And Matthew then warned Brandon, Brendan that if he got in his way, he would be next. So he let him go. And that must have been one of the hardest decisions that young man has ever had to make in his life. So back at the house, another roommate called 911. And police arrived at the scene uh, within five minutes of the call. So while police did arrive within five minutes of the call, it wasn't quick enough. It was too late for Zach, Jordan, and Lawrence, who had already died from their injuries. Katie and Josh were rushed to the hospital, but they would later die from their injuries. So I want to say they died painless deaths, but I can't say that on a clean conscience because I don't know if they did or not, or I don't know if they were scared in their last moments. And that breaks my heart. So almost right after the call was placed, Matthew was spotted running frantically away from the crime scene. So because he was running and evading arrest, police had to deploy uh, the dog, the police dog. So, one thing that they noticed was that he seemed to feel no pain, that he seemed to feel no pain. He was like the Incredible Hulk, they said, that he wasn't scared. He didn't shy away from the dog. He didn't show pain once the dog latched onto him. And he put up a continued fight as he was put under arrest. So this is already isn't good. You are running from a crime scene after you have stabbed five people. You get the dog deployed on you. And you still try to fight a police officer? Something is really wrong. And they honestly thought that he was on drugs. 
it would, would later be proven that he wasn't on drugs, that it was just a mental breakdown. Spoiler alert. So police found a latex glove in his pocket. Like we mentioned before, he put on blue surgical latex gloves. Um, a clove of garlic in his sock, which I mentioned before, and he said, and I quote, was to keep the vampires away. He also wanted to speak to a lawyer. So he lawyered up right away. And I feel like he did this because he's the son of a cop. So he's probably heard his dad say, oh, if you get in trouble, you ask for a lawyer right away. So either that's one possibility or either he knew he was guilty and he knew he needed to speak to a lawyer. He wasn't done talking, though. While he was in the ambulance, he would tell paramedics that he was just trying to kill them before they killed me. So Matthew's state of mind at the time of the attack would become the focal point of his defense case. After being assessed by a team of doctors, they all came to the conclusion that he was clearly experiencing a psychotic episode. So this is pretty rare that you get a whole team of doctors, a whole team of psychologists. Psychologists, psychologists sorry, are no- notorious for not agreeing on a definition or a conclusion, as I learned in my intro to psych course that I took last semester. <laughs> so evidence showed that he believed he was, and I quote, the son of God and Hitler reincarnated. So he believed that he was the son of God, which is a lot is something that you hear with a lot of schizophrenics, those um, delusions, illusions of grandeur, that they think that they're uh, grandiose ideas, that they're the son of God. Oh, I'm the next Messiah. But the Hitler, that's weird. That doesn't sit right with me because you normally don't go around saying, oh, yeah, I'm the son of Hitler. Like, yeah, it's no big. But obviously he's psychotic at this point. So I can't really take his word. I don't really take his word seriously per se, but I do know he was having a psychotic episode. So take from that what you will. He believed that his victims were Illuminati, werewolves, and Medusas. So I don't know who he thought was who, but he thought that they were going to attack him, that he was in danger. He believed that his life was in danger, that he had to do something first. So all of this information led to Matthew being diagnosed with schizophrenia. So because of this diagnosis, his legal team presented um, a not criminally responsible by reason of insanity during his trial. So, and during this trial, it really was revealed how truly mentally disturbed this man was. So even in the hours leading up to these uh stabbings Matthew sent his boss and he worked at a superstore as a produce in the produce department I remember reading and hearing um cryptic texts reading trust that I never hurt anyone all will be known and just the number five and I think that number five was constantly running through his head um which is why he killed five people there was five people there he killed five just that number kept repeating and it must have meant something to him. I don't know what it meant. Um, the trust that I never hurt anyone. I think he was, I don't know what that means or even the all will be known. So in 
leading up to this, about 30 days before this happened, his parents, so a police officer, an inspector with the Calgary Police Office, with the Calgary Police Service, and his mother considered signing a mental health warrant, which in Canada is a lot like, um, oh, I'm, I don't remember it right now, but it basically, it would force him to enter treatment for his psychiatric problems. So it's like a psych hold when you go to a hospital, they might put you in a 72-hour psych hold. This one would be for about 30 days, and then it could be extended even further depending on how much progress he makes with his treatments. So even the friend um, that invited Matthew noticed that he was acting differently. As I mentioned before, he was talking about conspiracy theories, hidden messages, hidden meanings in songs, the patterns in the Matrix movies. And I know that almost reminds me, the patterns, the hidden meanings in songs, that almost reminds me of Charles Manson with the Helter Skelter believing that he was going to be the, that he needed to cause a race war. That's almost what that brings true to me. Um, and he talked about Obama being the Antichrist, which we heard a lot of during Obama's presidency by racists. He also spoke of crazy theories, like how he believed um, the world would end at midnight. So he even ended up smashing his phone with an axe, which was never explained. It was like they were out at a fire, and all of a sudden he takes an axe and smashes his phone. And Brendan actually tried to give it back to him, but Matthew just threw it in the fire for some reason. All of these facts were presented at his trial, which was presented in front of a judge only because this was just his NCR trial. And if he was found criminally responsible, it would have gone to a regular criminal trial with a jury. This was just presented in front of a judge only. But he was found NCR, so not criminally responsible for the five counts of first degree murder he faced. He even read a statement emphasizing how sorry he was for what he did that he took full responsibility for his actions. He was then sent to a secure psychiatric facility pending review. So I was actually talking to my boyfriend about this uh, before I started recording, and he's like, well, what does not criminally responsible mean? Does it mean that they got the wrong guy? No, it doesn't mean that they got the wrong guy. It means that there was some um, external factor that played a heavier role in what happened at the time of the crime. So in this case, it was his mental health, the fact that he was experiencing a psychotic episode led to him being considered not criminally responsibly responsible in the eyes of the law. And I personally, I have a bit of an issue with NCR cases because a lot of times um, with the psychiatric defense, if they spend enough time in a psychiatric hospital, they can be released with no supervision, they don't have to check in with a parole officer. Nobody checks in to make sure if they're t- taking their meds, if they're staying on their treatment plan. They can move anywhere within the country, and no one could know where they are. And there's an, the case I'm going to cover next in two weeks um, is one of those cases, one of those infuriating cases that just, oh, that makes me angry just talking about it because it's ridiculous. This guy should never have been released. And Matthew's, this story, this case doesn't end here. Um, so according to his doctors, Matthew has been nothing but a model patient and has only shown improvement since he has been admitted, which led to his possible release. 
So this meant that the families of the victims have to go in front of a review board, read victim impact statements talking about how the deaths of their young children affected them and how this man is dangerous and should not be released back into society. But even some of his doctors believe that the possibility of him going off his meds and reoffending is way too high to consider his release. So there is a bit of a split there, and I know it is delayed now because of the coronavirus. Um, but I do recall reading or listening to another podcast that covered this. Um, if you listen to Crime Beat, Nancy Hicks does an amazing job of covering this case, a local Calgary case. That's where I got a lot of my information, both from that podcast and the article that she wrote for Global News, as well as a CBC News article about this case. But this case, it's heartbreaking in so many different ways. These young kids, they had their whole lives ahead of them. They were just, some of them were just about to graduate. Some of them were still in college, still in university. And it's really, it's frustrating because this man that had a psychotic episode and murdered five people might be able to be released without having to check in with anyone. And if you know me personally, you know, I'm a big, big supporter of getting people the mental health help that they need. But I find it, I have an issue with these types of cases, just the fact that there's no accountability, there's no system to check in to make sure, hey, are you taking your meds? Are you sticking to your treatment plan? Um, stuff like that. So I think the system does need a little bit of reforming in that aspect. But I will keep you guys updated as um, I find out more about this case. And speaking of updates, I want to provide a little bit of an update for the Cindy Gladue case, which I covered a couple episodes ago, pre, uh, jury selections have begun for the set for the retrial of um, Bradley Barton. I not retrial, but jury selections have begun. Yes, it was the retrial. Yes, it's the retrial. Um, and so I will keep you updated as I hear more about that. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, feel free to follow me on all my socials at Bria.Mason for both Instagram and TikTok and at Your Killing Me Smalls podcast, all one words. Have a, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and make smart choices.